Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, it is so good to sing the praises of our God together, isn't it? I don't know about you, but there's just, I felt over the last two weeks some places in my soul just reawakening that maybe had grown dormant over the last year or so. And uh, I hope that you're uh, sensing the presence of God in this place just like I am. You know, it was April 15th of 2019. I was sitting in my office and somebody came in and said, have you seen the news? I said, no. And they responded by telling me that the great cathedral of Notre Dame was on fire. Do you remember this? I had been in Paris about five months previously, and I'd stood in that great cathedral, looked up in awe at the ceiling, and my breath was just taken away when I was there. And so my breath was taken away once again when I saw roughly 800 years of culture starting to go up in smoke, quite literally. You know, if you were to go to Paris, what you'd find in the courtyard of Notre Dame is a marker that's point zero in Paris. It means that everything else in Paris is measured against this cathedral. It's literally the heart and the center of Paris. It's, it's, it's where everything else takes their cue from. But you have to travel roughly 880 miles and a few centuries back to realize how Notre Dame became point zero in Paris. You see, it was 313 in the Roman Empire when the Romans issued the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. That was a big deal because previous to that, Christians were highly persecuted. In fact, it was not uncommon for a follower of Jesus to find themselves on a stake covered in tar and lit on fire in order to light up the emperor's night parties. Okay, and so to have Christianity be legal was a massive step, but then one decade later in 323, Constantine officially made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And it was at that point that followers of Jesus started to have power. They started to be able to meet inside of buildings. They started to have trained clergy that worked for them. They started to have political sway and political influence. Before that moment, that thought would have been absolutely crazy to followers of Jesus. And the church has been different ever since. You know, um, persecution broke out around Europe And in 1620, a group of pilgrims bravely got on boats and charted a course to a new world. They founded this country on the basis of a a longing for freedom of religion. Not just of Christianity, but of, of any religion. But certainly Christianity was the most prominent in this new world. If you were to go to most small towns in America today and most urban centers, do you know what you would find at point zero of most urban centers in the U.S. today? A church. A church on Main Street. 
That's sort of the way that things were for a long time in our country. The church wasn't just a contributor to society. It was in many ways the creator of it. Now, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic, and certainly pastors have a tendency to do that, okay? I don't think I'm being overly dramatic when I say that day is no more. I mean, in so many ways, for the past few hundred years, Notre Dame has been more popular as a tourist attraction than it has as a church. If you go to some of these churches in urban centers, many of them today are being turned into bars and pubs and nightclubs. People gathering there to socialize rather than to worship. And many followers of Jesus are being edged out of the public square. The idea, the idea that Christianity is an important cultural contributor is an anathema in our day and our time. In our day, Christianity seems to be viewed more as a nuisance or a straitjacket than it does as a positive contributing factor to society at large. In fact, um, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their great book, Good Faith, interviewed a number of people who aren't yet followers of Jesus and asked them what they thought about the church. And the two words that they used to describe the church most often were irrelevant and extreme. Irrelevant and extreme. And the rise of enlightenment thinking, humanism, secularism, and individualism has caused a dramatic shift in our Nation. This started in roughly the mid-20th century, and the church found itself being left behind. And I'm not talking about the Kirk Cameron kind of left behind. <laughs> the rise of the moral majority was the church's last-ditch effort to grasp for the power that was slipping through her hands. But it turned out that the moral majority was neither moral nor the majority, and that power slipped through the church's hands. It became more of a relic of the past than a reality of the present. And I think today we have two options. You're, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Ryan, that's encouraging. I'm really glad you're, you came today. Let's close in prayer. Now, I, I think we have two options in front of us today as a church, capital C church. We can either Fight for power and cling to something that is fading like a mist. Or we can dive into something not so new and not so normal. See, there's a lie that we've often believed, and it's this. That we need to be point zero in order to have an impact. That we need to have the power in order to have influence. You see, power means that you have the control. It means you're on top. It means that you have the credentials. It means that what you want to have happen, happens. In the ancient world, it meant that you had a bigger sword. In our modern world, it means that you have a stronger pen. And either way, you call people to get in line whether they want to or not. And the church has often grasped for power. Let me give you an example. In 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that it, they were banning prayer from public schools. Do you remember this? 
And followers of Jesus responded, and we fought that battle in the courts, right? And I'm not saying that that was necessarily right or wrong, but standing a few decades later, I have to wonder why we didn't instead say to our kids, they can't take prayer out of schools. They can cease having a time where they ring a bell and force people to pray. Sure. But they can't take prayer out of schools. They'd have to take Christians out of schools in order to take Christian prayer out of schools. Why don't we tell our kids, no, no, you can pray. Pray over your schools. Prayer walk your halls. Gather people to pray. Who cares if a bell rings or not? And see, the reason we didn't is because we had this model of power in our mind where we said, it's got to be legislated in order for it to be legitimate. But I would argue, friends, there is a different way. Influence is different than power. See, influence is the ability to affect change in someone or something, but it's often indirect. It's subversive, and it's often from a position not of power, but of humility. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here today, by, by the way, um, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I'm so glad you're here because you're going to get to look in to see what as followers of Jesus, we are called to. But I believe God has a word for you as well as we wrestle with what it looks like to be people who have influence without power. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm inviting you today to embrace a shifting of the script. See, I think our script for a long time has been we've got to get back to the glory days. We've got to get back to like the 1950s when the church had influence, when the church had power. And I just want to say, I do think we have to go back, but I don't think the 1950s are nearly far enough. <laughs> I think we have to go back further. Let's take our cue from the early church. I think the world that our kids are growing up in is far more akin to the world of the early church than it is to the world that my grandparents grew up in. See, the early church, they had zero power, but gained massive impact. They had no seat on the Sanhedrin. They had no buildings to meet in. They had no rights to protect them. They had no standing that garnered them any sort of respect. They had no official training. And yet, when Luke writes about the early church in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, he says, they turned the world upside down. And what Luke is doing is reminding us that you can have massive influence without having a position of power. You can have massive influence without having a position of of power. So how did they do this? How did the church turn the world upside down without having anything that we normally think of that affects change? See, their influence, their influence was shaped by their expectations, by their priorities, and by their commitments. And I want to invite you to open to Acts chapter 4 as we dive into the journey of the early church that's not so new. It's a few thousand years old. And it's not so normal. As you're turning to Acts chapter 4, let me give you a little bit of the context that leads us up to this point. Uh, Jesus was crucified, he was resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers, gave them a power to proclaim, and it gave them his spirit to guide them. 
And a few days later, as Peter is walking to the temple to pray, he sees a man who's sitting along the side of the street, unable to walk. The man calls out to Peter and asks for money. He's begging. And listen to the way that Peter responded to him. He said this. Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Quick time out. Isn't that a great statement? I mean, usually we stop when somebody asks us for something that we don't have, we stop and we say, sorry, I don't have it. Peter says, I don't have that, but let me tell you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, if you're in a position of power, this is where everybody stands up and goes, praise God for that. A miracle. Someone couldn't walk and now they can. God is on the move. But if you have no power and you're a threat to people in positions of power, this isn't received quite as fondly. And so Peter and John are brought before the governing authorities of that time and they're going to teach us how to be not so new and not so normal. Here's what they said. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. (laughs) Isn't it funny? Somebody who couldn't walk is now walking and they are annoyed. What an inconvenience. This person was healed. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They were greatly annoyed because God was on the move. But here's what you notice in the disciples' response. They're not saying, hey, we really expected you to roll out the red carpet for us. The disciples aren't going, we're shocked at this kind of pushback. No, 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 no. Here's what, because they weren't in a position of power, but still longed to have influence, they expected opposition. They expected the people were going to push back. They expected it. Because it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. I mean, listen to the way that he put it to his disciples. It's recorded in John chapter 16, verse 33. And Jesus tells his disciples this. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Notice, notice, friends. Peace is not just something that God gives. It's something that God gives in Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have pain. You're going to have suffering. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, hey, Jesus, I got about 100 questions about that. Okay? (laughs) Let me just ask one, though. Jesus, didn't you mean to say, I have overcome the world, therefore, 
there will be no tribulation. Doesn't that make more sense? I have overcome, I'm victorious, and so will you be. It's going to be smooth sailing, Jesus followers. Everybody's just going to applaud. Whatever you do, when you act in the name of Jesus, and when people are freed, the world's going to look on and go, praise be to God, he's on the move. That isn't at all what the disciples expected, nor was it what Jesus promised. Jesus is preparing his disciples to have what we might call grit, stick-to-itiveness when things don't go their way. He's teaching them that their capacity to endure pain will determine their potential for influence. He's saying to them and to us, when you experience trials and when you experience tribulation, do not tap out, do not give up, push forward. So much so that Peter stands up in front of the leaders and he says, whether it's right in the sight of God, this is in verse 19 and 20, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You got to decide, leaders. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. As I was studying Acts chapter 4, I thought, my goodness, doesn't this just launch us into our current cultural moment where we're wrestling with civil disobedience and when to push back against the government and how to push back against the government and when to say, I'm really sorry that that's your rule, but we simply cannot follow it. This launches us into today. And I think it's important that we take a step back and ask some questions about what civil disobedience looked like in the New Testament. What was the thing that Peter said he was unwilling to do? He says, I, I can't be quiet about Jesus. About Jesus. I refuse. I have seen, I have heard. This is my testimony and I've got to share it. That's the first thing that we see. But the second thing we see is that his argument, his civil disobedience was not about whether or not he had a legitimate platform. He didn't expect to. He had no power. So he wasn't fighting over whether or not he had the right to do this. No, 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 no. Their engagement was more around the content of their message than it was around the legitimacy of their platform. And then you notice what Peter does? He just, he accepts whatever comes from his disobedience. Uh, here, it struck me, it struck me. He didn't resist, he didn't fight back, he didn't get offended, he didn't get defensive, he didn't retaliate. He said, if going to jail is what we have to do because of the way that we speak of Jesus, then we will go. And his disobedience looked a whole lot like Jesus's who uttered not a word. And you know what happens because of this? I think there's a challenge for us, friends. I think that followers of Jesus in the 21st century, I think we need to read this, and I think we need to remember that the way that we respond when we perceive we're wronged is a part of the message we give. The way that we respond when people disagree with us, when we lose rights that we have historically enjoyed, the way that we respond on social media, the email that we send, the glance that we give, it's all a part 
of the message. It all counts. But it's really interesting to me. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. I mean, this is right on the heels of the church exploding to 3,000 in chapter 2. Just unbelievable. And here's the truth. The church has always flourished in times of persecution. I don't like it. I can't explain it. But the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest the gospel. The gospel was on the move. And God was at work in their midst. And I think one of the reasons that the church seems to flourish in times of persecution is because you can't ride the fence. You're either in or you're out. Did you know that the most significant gospel movement today, church planting movement today, is happening in Iran? Where it is illegal for people to publicly talk about Jesus. A movement led mostly by Iranian women calling people to faith in Jesus. God is doing an amazing thing. But the second thing that happens when persecution hits is the church has to wrestle with the core of their message. What are we really about? What's important and what's not important? And listen to the way that Peter teaches. Here's what it says. It says, and they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, would you say this with me, church? Resurrection from the dead. This is the core of the early church's message. Christ was dead. Jesus was crucified. He died on a Roman cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave with new life in his hands. In fact, when Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, he said this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my, what? Gospel? And Paul's saying, listen, the gospel is about Jesus risen from the dead. If you don't talk about the resurrection, you don't talk about the gospel according to Paul. It's really, really interesting That the early church's message didn't include a defense of the Bible. It didn't include a critique of Rome. It didn't comment on the sexual exploits of the onlooking world. It was simple. Christ is risen. Oh, and so will we. So will we. If the early church had a Twitter account, it would have been all Jesus all the time. And so here's the first thing they do. They expect opposition. The second thing they do is they clarify their priorities. I would encourage you to do the same. They're going, if we only have a few moments, here's what we're going to talk about. Jesus. Resurrection. If we only have a few things you're going to listen to, here's what you're going to hear us talk about. Jesus and the resurrection. See, many people during the COVID season, they've had their priorities sort of drawn to the surface. That's what happens when we're in the pressure cooker. The things that are most important to us start to rise up. I had a woman tell me just this week that in the midst of all of the COVID lockdowns and social distancing, she said to me, I just got the sense that family is way more important than I was making it. And so she's moving across the country to be closer to family. But it was all stirred up in the midst of this season. But Peter, in talking about his priorities, he made this really, really un 
popular statement. Go to verse 10 with me. He said this. He said, and let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, now just a quick time out. Um, he must not have read, read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> like Peter, ooh, wouldn't say that, you know? Hey, he, he is not making any friends with that statement. He's looking at people and going, remember how a few weeks earlier, you killed him? And they're like, yeah. He goes on to say, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus this is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He has become the cornerstone. And then he makes the statement. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you think that this is an unpopular statement today, and it is, it was radically unpopular in Peter's day. This was a pluralistic society. Anything goes. No big deal. Sure, just add another God to the pantheon. And Peter is standing up and saying, listen, not only to the Jews who are there who are worshipers of Yahweh, but to the onlooking Roman world, he's going, there is only one name under heaven that has the ability to save you from an eternity of death and hell, and his name is Jesus. There is one name above every other name. And everybody looked at him and went, come on, Peter, pace down a little bit, buddy. It reminds me of an analogy that was birthed in India and utilized by Buddhists and Hindus and, and Sufi and it's an analogy about an elephant, and it makes the claim that all religions are sort of like a, a blind man who are gathering around an elephant. And some religions grab the leg and they describe the leg. Others grab the tusk and they describe the tusk. Others grab the trunk and they describe it, the ears and describe it. They get on the back and describe it. And essentially, the analogy is every religion has a little bit of the truth, but they don't have the whole truth. And they're really all just describing the same God from a different angle. So can't we all just coexist? Get along. It's an elephant. And here's... What Tim Keller, I think, brilliantly says in response. He said, how could you know that each blind man only sees a part of the elephant unless you claim to see the whole elephant? You're supposed to go, huh? <laughs> Let's try that again. Uh, how could you know that each blind man only sees a part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? Yeah, great Yeah, yeah. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have? Thank you. You're, you're done. <laughs> and here's the truth. Will you just look up at me for just a moment, friends? Peter is simply quoting Jesus. Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, 
I am the truth and I am the life. And I love you enough to tell you that what Peter preached on that day is still true today. There is no other name given under heaven that we might be saved by. And I would argue it's only the church on the edge, it's the church that's longing for influence, even if it doesn't have power, that can make that statement. The truth that's hungry for social power and capital wants to make everybody happy, and that statement makes no one happy. But it's true. And we're going to be a church that keeps the main thing the main thing. The gospel is our main thing. Jesus is our main thing. The cross and the resurrection are our main thing. They always will be. But, but it's not just proclamation of the gospel that the early church does. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. It says, and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Here's what Peter's saying. Hey, if we're on trial for a good deed, we are guilty as charged. Did it. We did it. And you're going to have to treat us however you're going to treat us. But we are guilty as charged. Here's what the early church did. They expected opposition. They clarified their priorities. It's about Jesus. And then they committed to love. Not just people that agreed with them. Even people that persecuted them. They agreed to love, or they committed to love. And friends, the church is designed to be a healing balm for the city that it's placed in. The church is designed to be an invasive force for good, even towards people who hate it. And I am longing for a day when, as a church, we can do exactly what Peter did as he walked into that city. If you go back and you read through Acts chapter 3, here's what he does. He hears the cry and the pain of the people. He stops what he's doing. And by the way, what he was doing was going to church. But he stops. He hears and he stops and he calls on Jesus to move and to work, believing that Jesus can heal. Do you believe he can? And then he steps into the gap and he says, God, use me. God, use me. He hears the cries. He stops what he's doing. He calls on Jesus and he steps into the gap. And I know some will push back and go, Ryan, we can't just be a church. It's about good deeds. And I would argue you're totally right. But we also can't be a church without good deeds. Those always go together in the Gospels. You always see Jesus meeting a physical need and meeting a spiritual need. In Young Life, when I served with Young Life, we had this short quip quip that really defined how we wanted to do ministry. We wanted to earn the right to be heard. And I wonder what it would look like for us to earn the right to be heard in our neighborhood, in our city, in our county, and all around the world. And in so many ways, we're just stepping into the stream that Jesus talked about when he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So they think you're great? So they just reap the benefits of your light? No, 
so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I love, you guys, I love pastoring a church that says, we're going to take this really, really seriously. So I want to encourage you on your way out today. By the way, we're not done, okay? Don't leave. This isn't my clothes yet. I'm getting there, okay? But I want to encourage you on your way out today to stop by one of the Love Esco tents. As Pastor Luke talked about, man, we want to be a church that worships not just on Sunday, amen? We want to love our city in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, where we proclaim it's him alone. And we live out that love in very practical ways. Can I just talk to you pastorally for just a moment? Uh, thanks. One, I heard a yes. Okay. <laughs> it breaks my heart, you guys, that the church is known more for what she's against than for what she's for. This hasn't always been the case. And did you know that the church is responsible for some of the first hospitals? They're responsible for education and literacy? That it's in our DNA, it's in our bloodstream to say, no, we're going to care about the most vulnerable in our population? We're going to care about women, we're going to care about children, we're going to be on the front lines of advocating for those things? That's, that's in our blood, you guys. And I don't want it to just be in our past. I believe that it needs to also be in our future. Here, here's a goal. How's this for a 2025 vision? Here we go, okay? Let's make it our goal to be put on trial for good deeds. How's that for a goal? Like, let's just embrace that as a church. That's our goal. Let's make it our goal to be put on trial for good deeds done in the name of of Jesus. And I love the way that this passage, this part of it wraps up. It says, and now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. Now, just a quick time out. Not a compliment. <laughs> They're going, are these dudes from like Galilee? They haven't been to seminary? What rabbi did they train under? Jesus, didn't he die? Hey, they're uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, what a statement. See, in a digital age where we want more and more information, when we want to feed our heads so that we can say the right things in hope of convincing the world that Jesus is the Messiah, that he loves them, and that he's for them, I'm convinced that information is really, really important. But I don't think people will care what you know until they know that you care. And the best way to have a heart that cares for those around you is to be saturated in the presence of Jesus. Because when you're in the presence of Jesus, you know that you are loved, that you are cared for, that you're a child of the most high God, that you have been made holy, that you've been forgiven, that you don't have to walk in any guilt and any shame, and then you are freed to love the people around you. See, friends, I'm convinced that influence is found in carrying Jesus' presence, not in having having a platform and the world needs more people in it who carry the presence 
of Jesus. You want to do the best thing you can for your marriage, for your workplace, for your friendships. The best thing you can do in order to love the people around you is to know that God loves you. And then, and then, and then you carry that aroma into the world. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're bringing into these walls as we gather for worship. You might be like the person who was sitting along the side of the road, just destitute. You, you might be here today and you're going, God, I'm just calling out to you because my life is a mess. I am broken. I'm hurting. And this is sort of my last ditch effort, Lord. I just want you to know that God hears you and we see you. And we believe that he wants to meet you just like he did that man so many years ago. Call out to him, cry out to him. But maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're here today and you've sort of been grasping after power as the way to have influence. And I just want to invite you, let's flip the script. Let's be people who understand that the people that have had the most impact in our lives have often been people who didn't have power, but had massive influence. And we can do the same by the power and grace of Jesus. Let's expect opposition. Let's clarify our message. And then let's commit to love regardless of how we're treated. You see... When Notre Dame was burning on April 15th of 2019, there was another fire that was starting. And it was of a house church movement. It would begin in Iran and spread all throughout the Middle East. And I would argue, I would argue that more people have met Jesus because of this little house church movement in Iran than met him in 200 years in Notre Dame. Power versus influence. Which are we going after? Let's pray, and then we're going to go to the table together. So Father, we've been just in the stream of one line of thought for so long. And Lord, today we're just saying we're open to you. If you have something different for us, we want to hear your voice. We want to have influence because we believe that you are a God who's good, who's loving, who's reaching out, and that We are on mission. We want to have influence. So Jesus, I pray that you would lead us and guide us. In the early church, as people were added to their number daily, I pray that you would cause that to happen in our body as well. That revival would break out. Not because we have power, but because we're led by your spirit. God, move and work, we pray. In our day, in our time, may your deeds be known in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.